So anyway, we're just talking. Waiting. No, 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 no. no. I got you all. Uh, nice. Yeah, there you go. That is just wonderful. Well, this, this podcast is nothing. We're pleasant, <laughs> at least for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> After that, it's a crap shit. You know sous vide? Sous vide cooking? Yes, of course. So, I'm a foodie. Oh, you are a foodie. So, yes, for sure. Sous vide bison. Bison short rib sous vide. I didn't know. Was it tender? It was warm, crispy, crusty on the outside. Um, The center was was warm, the outside was hot. Um, It worked out really well. Um, The internal temperature, like one We actually are recording now. Okay. That was just the opener. That was the opener. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about anything under the sun. Awesome. Cool. So we are here with our third installment of Innovation Blab, and we are privileged <laughs> to have as our guest, Diane Buis, PhD, from the University of Michigan, has an MBA, and um, we're just taking all She's and every person that's ever worked at the University of Michigan. She has a lot. She does have a lot of letters after her name. Diane, would you mind introducing yourself for Probably. our viewers and, yeah, and, and tell us a little bit about um, what you've been up to lately? All right. Well, thanks, <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. Diane Buis, um, medical scientist by training and uh, transitioned to the business side of science uh, a little over a decade ago, as you said, by way of MBA. Um, I have, I, I just recently celebrated 20 years in the U.S. I'm originally from Europe, so the accent is somewhere between German and French, which are the languages I speak to my parents. Um, 20 years in the U.S. and very specifically 20 years in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, oh, but if you're... Go <laughs> blue. Go blue indeed. <laughs> um, and so that, that harkens back to an earlier conversation you had on this podcast with someone else who was at the University Stephane. of Michigan. Stefan. Stefan indeed. Um, so, and, and, and we do know each other, Stefan is a former colleague. Um, so post-MBA, I spent some quality time in innovation consulting. So industry agnostic, Fortune 50 company in uh, innovation consulting. Um, and, and really fell in love with the lean startup methodology. Um, if you think about it, over the past, I'm going to say 30 years, innovation consulting, corporate innovation has really gone from just uh, f- do cool stuff internally sure. to find me cool stuff externally that we should br- bring in and how long is the tether. Um, Sorry, and so, the interrupter soon. Yeah, that's okay. Going. That's right. Do it. Um, but but <laughs> we're, we're letting you. But reel you're letting off me noodle, line. which is phenomenal. <laughs> I'll take it. I, I will noodle all day long. But practically, so fell in love with the, just the lean startup methodology, and so went from intrapreneurship, which is internal innovation, sure. to entrepreneurship. And so, but the, the question then is, how do you go to entrepreneurship? There's 25 different ways. And I went by way of working with a couple of startups and then uh, running an incubator. And that is the connection to University of Michigan. Ooh, okay, Grand University of Michigan incubator. Whoa, okay, let's just completely mix this up. Yeah, I, yeah. I had something I was interested in. Go so, ahead. So in case the one listener we have, which is probably going to be me one minute. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Tries to figure out what happened here. We did have a, we, we did talk earlier today. We did. We, did. we just, we just got together for lunch. Sushi. We talked about a lot of topics. Sushi. Sushi's what do we always. Have? What do we have? We had. Uh, we didn't have any taki, but we had um, a little bit of unagi. We had some eel. We had uh, ikora. Um, Ooh, what's that? Oh, actually, we didn't. There was no ikora. No. I usually order ikora. It was a soft shell crab. It was a soft shell crab. A little spider roll. A caterpillar roll, which is eel and avocado, which is a nice combination. And then we had some sea Yellow urchin. Tail. Some sea, sea urchin. urchin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so here's the question. Yeah. What is the, the, and this may draw on your MBA experience, 
Why is it that the tech industry suffers, seems to be suffering more now as interest rates go up? This should be both easy and hard to answer. Ooh. This is what's bothering me because we're in a. I will tell you. I'll tell you right now. There we go. You so, him, let, let give him the so, first answer that gives so, me time so, to think. You're not even necessary. So, <laughs> you are useless. So, tell, me, tell, tell me if you agree to that. I, I, I'd be interested, but um, when interest rates go up, mobility is ground to a halt. So it's really difficult for people, some people, to, to move around the country for opportunities when interest rates are high. Because they're lock, I'm locked in at like 2.5% right now. So for me to, to upend my family to go somewhere and take out a new mortgage at 8% is, is blasphemy, right, financially speaking. I agree, but that's, as I understand it, just one factor. Okay, but it's a driver. I argue it's a, a secondary factor, okay. but it is a driver. that's fair. So we'll go back to our guests. So what is, why is it, what is it about, I think it's a question of investors, I think this is incorrect, but I'm going to say it, I think it's a question of investors deciding are they taking? Are they better off taking a portion of their portfolio and leaving it in, putting into bonds or into some funds that relate to bonds, where the rates are inherently higher, versus putting it into startups which are riskier but could be even better returns? So I assume it changes the uh, how do you pronounce it in chemistry uh, stoichiometry of the situation. But you must have a better answer with all of your degrees. I appreciate that, uh, that, that upfront trust, and I will tell you in all honesty, I don't know, but I can come up with a hypothesis. This is an area I am by no means an expert in, and so yeah. I, I, but, um, so I want to double click on, uh, on the interest rates sure. and the housing stock, yeah, I yeah. think that's one. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I think perception is reality, and especially in the field of investment, um, if somebody thinks this is a bad economy, then it is. And so, so there is still a little bit of a circle the wagons mentality of there is less money, be it in the markets, but also in much, much earlier where, where I play um, with venture capitalists and angels. Is in, oh, let's wait and see. This is not a great time but to is, invest. Is inflation, high interest rates, I think at least these days correlate with inflation. It must. There sure. must be a correlation. Um, is inflation necessarily mean a bad economy, and high interest rates mean a bad economy? It's an excellent question, and I know exactly who I would call to answer it. But Ghostbusters? <laughs> not Ghostbusters, uh, a friendly economist. Yeah, we have a phone. Quite frankly, I, I, this is an area that I hope to grow into, but I genuinely don't know. And, and U of M, University of Michigan, you didn't. You, didn't, you must have run into cycles later because you were there for a bit. You must have seen these same cycles that we see here out, out in the, is this Main Street? We're yeah. close to Main Street. We are. We're very Actually, close literally. to Main Street. Yeah. Yeah. My interest has always been on the tech side. Yeah. Um, and so how to get really phenomenal technology to market. And so the factors that help in taking it to market, absolutely. Interest rates. Um, are relevant to early stage startups, but by no means as important to later stage startups or big public companies. And so that's why how the interest rates affecting um, affecting startups specifically is just not something that is very high on my radar. Okay. So I don't yeah. have a good answer. Not, not all of us MBAs are macroeconomists. Right? Okay. So we're, okay. we're, there's some levers that we can talk about we can pull okay. in the innovation space. Okay, your turn. So yesterday I saw an amazing movie. Um, we're talking about it. It was called Dumb Money with uh, Seth Rogen. It's brand new, but it was about the GameStop incident at um, 
the 20, like 2020, around that time, the summer of 2020, where the army of retail investors took over the stock market and formed a um, pitchfork and torch-wielding uh, group to go after large investors, um, like, uh, what was the name of the company? Citadel yeah. uh, was one of the funds that they went after that shorted um, to the tune of billions of dollars GameStop. And um, I thought it was really an interesting biopic. What did you learn biopic. from that? <laughs> I don't want to get too, no, I don't want to get too much. We got him. He was not planning on thinking. Oh, no, I'll, I'll, tell you the, I'll tell you the story. Okay. What I learned yeah. is that um, despite what we think about a free market economy, the game is rigged, has always been rigged. And um, those with influence can tell when to turn the game off. And that was the kind of principle at the end of the movie was, um, there was someone who was on both sides of funding the, the fueling the, the army, and Robin Hood was in the middle of it. This Robin was a Hood, big investor the, in, in Robin, Robin Hood. Hood the, um, the app, the retail app, where I can yeah. go on and purchase as many stocks as I want right now with no trading, no yeah. major trading fees, right? But um, they were backed by um, Citadel. They were backed by Ken Griffin at Citadel. And so Ken Griffin said to Robin Hood, once the short squeeze had happened and he was feeling pressure because he had shorted the stock, said, hey, shut it down. And they found text messages afterwards that said he told them to shut it down so that you could no longer buy Robin Hood at the higher price and nobody could continue you to buy it GameStop. By GameStop, sorry. Okay. Yeah, Robin Hood. So, um, but I thought that was really interesting. It was this huge biopic on what happened in that particular incident and this army of torch-wielding uh, retail investors were all holding the line, and they finally got the line pulled out from under their feet. Were there any RICO charges? Uh, there was filed? a congressional hearing okay. where they brought in the, 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 the members involved, and they said, you know, what happened? It was a bipartisan effort, and there was, there was no really politics involved. But what it was was we want to know what happened, and what, what do we need to do to fix this and make sure it doesn't happen? Was there any illegality? Uh, that text that I mentioned that he oh. sent to Robin Hood to say shut it down and don't let them buy anymore to take the buy option off so they can't buy anymore and that was not because um, stock the stock markets will occasionally shut down trading sure but not this was not the same reason no this is not because the stock market was still open but Robin Hood was closed. Well, Robin Hood was closed shut and down. It was self-interested because they couldn't back the three billion dollars in calls that happened all of a sudden oh so oh, interesting. things like that but it was a fascinating okay. movie if you have a chance Check it out. That's my where were plug we? for Seth Rogen. Excuse where me. Where were we before he we well, so brutally yeah. changed the topic? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think in, in this particular case, what I'm taking home, and I haven't yeah, seen yeah. the movie, sure, is sure. know the game that's being played. Oh, that's, that's right. a good Know point. the game that's being played. Sure. Who are the players and what are the rules? Because right. to, 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 I think to, to the army of small-time investors, sure. um, not all rules were visible. Yeah, that's true. So, that's true. But I don't think I don't think everybody even understood, even the large investors, what the mechanics were that these individuals were playing. So there was a Correct. there was a ringleader, and well, he the was rules changed. Yeah, there was yeah. a ringleader. His name he went by the uh, by the uh, pseudonym of Raging Kitty. Oh no! And also um, Deep Effing Value. I don't think we swear on on uh, on Innovation Blab, but. I do. He oh so deep fucking value was his YouTube channel, and then he had yeah, another another. Nobody watches the same. <laughs> had another one called Raging Kitty, and and he was basically saying I like the stock. He was a mass he was a mass mutual analyst. Wow. Worked for Mass Mutual, and then he found 
that the stock was over shorted and that there was inherent value in the stock and he just said he, he just liked the stock so he started a YouTube channel about it and then got followers and followers and followers finally he had like seven million people that were looking at his trades and he would post his his uh, holdings every day after the market closed and um, he went from a $53,000 investment, which was half of his net worth at the time, to $48 million. And now what, and what happened to that? Exactly. After this congressional hearing, he doubled down to 100,000 shares. And? He disappeared from the face of the planet. And? We don't really? know. We have no idea. He lived in Brockton, Mass. Oh. What I think happened, I'm just going to put it out there as a prediction. Yeah. I think he settled outside of court, outside of yeah. anything, right? And they said, go away. Oh, he's one of here's, here's a check. He's Go in away. like New Zealand with a gold buried in his basement. Possibly, but I, I don't think so. Guys. He this, he had integrity. One of the things that I, I was very impressed with was even when he was up to forty eight million, he didn't sell. He held the line and he, and he shorted the stock. Right. Or no, he didn't short the stock. He squeezed the uh, hedge fund and toppled a hedge fund, toppled okay. a couple of hedge funds yeah. okay. to the tune of twelve billion dollars um, that had shorted the stock. So I thought it was a fascinating look at how innovation is funded. I'm going to bring Diane back into the game. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, where I digress. Does, no, no. Where does innovation play in, to see if you're going to not get away from innovation here, and you were at the heart of it. We can cut that whole bit out, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more useful than everything else. That's okay. Where does innovation play in as a factor in business success? Answering that question from the startup perspective and from the established company perspective. No, there's no reason to cut it out. I just no, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah, gave me time to think. So because it's not and not everything is innovation. Pizza parlors do quite well. Some pizza parlors are quite innovative. Yeah. yeah. Oh, even if they're not innovative, right? So I'm at, at the risk of going all scholarly on you. I sure. think I think <laughs> not everything is innovation, and the question that I think at least drawing up the field from incremental to disruptive innovation makes sense. <clears throat> um, and so the pizza parlor that comes up with a, 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 a clever way to sell more pizza, it can be very innovative. And I think so in the advertising industry, um, there the definition of innovation may be quite different from say in hard tech. And I, I mostly play in hard tech as in things that we can, and heck, you're, you're an IP lawyer for as much as I understand. So and something that- I haven't figured that out myself. Uh, you know, so, so things that someone invented that, that required uh, knowledge of a particular area of science or so that, is, uh, that you can patent, that you can defend. Um, that is not something that I can very easily, just by observing you do it once, just copy. Um, we talked about cooking earlier. So if I watch you cook a comparatively simple meal, I can watch you and I can do it at home just because I'm reasonably skilled at the art. Um, practically in science, just watching you do something once might not do that. So I would, so that, and, and I, would, I would qualify that area as invention. And to go from invention to innovation, it has to have some sort of application. Somebody has to care about it. Not just, ooh, that's nifty, but Ooh, that's nifty, and it is going to make a difference for me in my life or in my work. I want that. And okay, so we can argue that's useful semantics and, and all value valuable. Yeah. Keep going though. So how does whether you call it invention or innovation 
just launching a business or keeping one going is much more than that. So where does that factor, invention, innovation, etc., play into business success? So I, my, my short answer is product market fit. Um, and mm. so uh, to me, that really means you have at some point <laughs> either fallen into or very methodically found um, a problem that is large enough that somebody cares about solving it. And so it, it's got to be large enough, it's got to be a pain point of some sort that someone is addressing somehow already right now. Um, and, but, but if you make it substantially faster, cheaper, easier, if it fits my life or my workflows better, I might be willing to change my current processes for it. Right, and when you say pain point, it's not necessarily it can be a pain point, but when um, the uh, Walkman came out uh, back right after the dinosaurs went <laughs> extinct, um, that wasn't a pain point as much as a an opportunity waiting to happen, which is, oh, I didn't realize I needed to have music in my pocket. So a pain point is a broad term. It is a broad term, I agree, but if you're going to stick with the example of the Walkman, you've got to immediately think of people walking around with ginormous boomboxes and bags of batteries. That's just true. because well, <laughs> I have a boombox this record, size, right? you want to go back to <laughs> I, I might have two hours worth of battery power. If I'm powering a small device, <laughs> it needs small... True. That was that example, but still pain points aren't always Absolutely. Sure, sure. Okay. So it is... Uh, better convenience, right? We, we, there's so much, so much uh, innovations that we buy well, that's to make so things more convenient. Where does, where does leadership play in? Where does luck play in? Leadership does. plays in where, where the ability to not only recognize, but um, to take advantage of capitalize, those pain points. Yeah, yeah, capitalize, yeah. right? To, to uh, empower and embolden and move people towards the vision of, of solving that pain point, right? We were just talking about women's health on the way, you know, in here. And if it's a big enough problem that some, you know, organization like the World Health Organization says, hey, this is this is a number one problem worldwide right now. If we can solve this, we can raise the boat for a lot of people. We can, you know, pull people up out of poverty or we can help give uh, families a chance to start or other things that just don't exist now for those populations. So. Uh, if it's a big enough pain, you can also get government involved to solve these problems, and that's... I'm going to stay on the big organization part on sure. that one and, 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 and take it to corporate innovation. Yeah. So when you're talking uh, which, what, you know, what, what makes it to the finish line, I think it would be another way of phrasing the, the question. Um, in, in a positive way. We have to... We have to... finished. We have to... Correct. Uh, we... We, when we're talking about leadership in that context, it is also the leadership of an organization that has decided this is a general area we are interested in, right? Large companies and even smaller companies every year or every couple of years in cycles decide these are the couple of areas or topics that we are interested in. That is in scope and other things are out of scope because we cannot do everything, we cannot dilute, our, dilute ourselves. Sure. So it's the, the leadership I think translates very quickly to strategy as to what are we going to do at the expense of all the other things we're not going to do. Okay, which is in part of that's a resource expenditure. Yes, and resource can be as simple as time. Yeah, time, people time. Time, yeah. money, 
So is there too much focus on innovation? I mean, you were, say what you were talking at University of Michigan, and, and Jeff didn't mention, but you were the head, maybe you did mention this. You I think it had some huge, some, some huge accelerator. accelerator thing the world's world. largest accelerator. Yeah, the world. Not, so, so I wanted to, to two different jobs. University okay. of Michigan, I ran an incubator. Right. At MedTech Innovator, I ran an accelerator program. Right. People use those two interchangeably, they are different. Okay. I did that at lunch, and I apologize. Oh, that, that is my just fault fine. Completely. Happy to, happy to go into, into semantics. Sure. So is there too much focus on innovation? Is innovation just a buzzword? For many people, innovation is just a buzzword. And for the buzzword, uh, for its buzzwordiness, I think it is overused. However, um, innovation is, is, is the lifeblood of any economy. In, in the end, <clears throat> why? Because new products, so at, at, in, in the simplest way, new products are what brings people to buy new or more things. And, and so. But, we, but people buy a lot of wheat. Wheat? Um, because they bake a lot of bread. But people but there's also. There's no innovation in wheat. Oh, 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 let us talk about <laughs> innovation in agriculture. <laughs> I think we get set up. There. There we go. <laughs> you were you were playing with us. Um, so yes, there um, a there's innovation in wheat, but b um, you can perhaps a couple of hundred years ago. All you would do with wheat is some sort of wheat gruel. But between wheat, some sort of wheat gruel that you, you, spoon, you dilute with water and just eat, we've got, we've got flour that allows us to make bread. But you could, you could also, I mean, there's, there's uh, at, at fancy restaurants now, you can get some uh, you know, wheat pearls as a substitute for rice. So even in the food, there is innovation. No, I don't disagree. Right, I agree. It's easy to... It's easy to find innovation in any area, but my point was not so, though I said we, sort of in commodities, I feel like, you, your comment I think was that innovation drives economies, Indeed. I believe that was the comment, I did. Yeah. and that innovation, and I think the implication was that innovation leads, is a huge factor, it ends up being a proportionally large factor of economic growth or the, an economy, but I'm wondering how much commodities, and the only innovation I see in wheat and many commodities is price innovation, right. i.e. driving price lower. Go ahead, oh, well, well, how about, in other words, there's no way to, well, how about genetically modified drop resistance, right? Drought resistance for growing. Well, how much does that, how much does that turn, uh, move the needle? It enables us to feed the world right now. I mean, well, honestly, if, if we didn't have some of these innovations, some of these innovations allow crops to be grown in other, otherwise, but China and um, Vietnam, now India, and other emerging economies haven't taken over manufacturing and therefore grown their own in their own internal economies through innovation as much as throwing bodies at it and subsidizing. So it's not so much innovation unless you consider. That's step one of an innovation economy. Sure. Um, and so I, I would say when, when you're trying to play catch up on some of the larger innovation economies, step one, um, define innovation and throw bodies at it, right? Sure. You, can, you can either spend, <laughs> you can 
spend time and, and people's time and effort on something. And realistically, that's how we look at, at, at a lot of, of, of AI these days, sure. right? The, in the first place, you put humans there, lots of humans perhaps in another part of the world yeah. to Google or manually curate data and things like that until your AI has caught up to what you were planning on doing. So step one, brute force. Yeah. Step two, um, some sort of innovation that allows you to make that process easier and faster. Figure and out what worked, what didn't work, and yeah. I don't disagree. Did you have any chance at any of your your prior jobs or current job to figure out how much of the economy really is related to innovation? And I'll say, let's focus on technical innovation now, as opposed to marketing innovation, and as opposed to. Uh, uh, macroeconomic innovation, which might be what China engaged in um, and still is engaging in, in a good way. I would have to come back to you on a specific statistic, but um, to stay on a middle ground there, when we're talking about CPG, consumer packaged goods, um, uh, the, you know, for you to buy more of the, the, the packaged goods that you buy every day from your supermarket, they have to come up with new things that one may or may not call innovation. Uh, but, ooh, look at that, there's a new flavor of my favorite snack or something like that. Who let me buy that? So that generates revenue. And absence of that is a problem for the manager of that particular business segment. Sounds like you need some larger sous vide bags. That would be very innovative. Oh, yeah. Well, the issue on the sous vide was that if you had too many of these ribs next to each sure. other, I could imagine, I was just thinking, at 48 hours, some of those were big hunks of mm -hmm. sh uh, short ribs. Sure, sure. So I was thinking, well, is the, is the heat going to get through to all of them? So I did want the five bags. It's that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. So the smaller bags are the innovative. Uh, or you throw yeah. more time at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah but the outside. A couple weeks. Yeah, yeah, couple yeah, weeks. But the outside, the outside of the meat would have been dead by that point, That's right? That's true. That's true. I mean, even as it was at two days, there was that one layer I was telling you about in the thick cuts that was super rare and surprised me. I couldn't imagine how they... I think fascia would cook faster. I couldn't figure out what happened. And I was, as I was cutting it for the thing, for my guests, who are all family members, so they probably won't sue me. I was thinking, I hope nobody gets any trichinosis on this or whatever beef from bison. That was last uh, night, right? Yeah. So we don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Stay so tuned. Sounds like a fun experiment. <laughs> if he runs out quickly, we know why it is. Possibly. Possibly. What's the timer? We'll just continue. <laughs> so I want to I want to start adding some regular questions that we usually ask, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I want to yeah. ask Diane. You've seen so much recently. You, you've literally seen a thousand companies in in the last year, right? What is the most innovative thing that you thought of and thought, you know what, that that's that needs to be here. That that is something that I need to put either your own personal energy towards or, you know, connect them to as many people. Also, I want to get into your, your abilities as a connector, but what's what's the most exciting thing that you've seen recently? Now that you've stepped out of that program, I think you're gonna be a little bit more biased. That or is, subjective, we should That say. is such a hard question because, as, as you can imagine, the, it, there are many startups sure. um, that each of us individually love. Yeah. Um, and so what's the most innovative? I'm just going to stay away from it. But what am I excited yeah, about? It's an easier question. There we go. Okay, just, there we go. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yes, nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, which is your favorite kid? Exactly. I can tell you, my, it changes daily. But. <laughs> exactly, and so there are, there are many things I'm excited about on a, on a daily basis, but um, 
uh, a startup that I'm personally leaning in on sure. right now over the next couple of months. Cool. And that is a measure of my personal of excitement, course, yeah, right? Of course it is. That, is that, that is how I spend my time. Sure. Is a, is a company that is using circular non-coding RNA okay. as a therapeutic. And so I'm happy to kind of just walk Whoa. that back towards right. Leibniz terms. <laughs> <Sorry>. Exactly. <laughs> so Circular when you RNA. hear, um, you know, when you see whatever a New York Times headline, oh, researchers have found um, one of the ways Alzheimer's works, or one of uh, one of the pathways, triple, triple negative breast cancer yep. works, then you go, yay, that relative, that friend, that person that I love that has this particular disease has hope for a cure. That's right. Um, but practically, uh, people, people who have been in the medical sciences for some time know that from someone discovering a pathway, a particular receptor, that plays yep. a role in that disease okay. um, to a cure is a decade or so, Easily. right? So, so it, it will not help this particular relative. Uh, and so uh, everybody's talking about AI. So what if we could use the power of AI to, yeah, I see your face. <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, whatever. But so well, I was what waiting for we... you to roll out nanoparticles. Not on this company, <laughs> we'll but heck, we should talk about nanoparticles sometime. Okay, keep going. Um, so, um, if you can, basically, if you can design a drug, if you can design a drug to fit anything you want. Sure. Um, we have in the past designed small molecules, right? You use peptides, which are little pieces of proteins. Um, but far smaller are uh, nucleases, right? So, so um, nucleotides. And so DNA and RNA are made of those little pieces. And um, the, the question, so it's not gene therapy. It is not, you're not altering someone's genes. Sure. You are making a designer molecule that fits into that receptor just like a key fits into a lock. Right. And so you tell me that receptor, we, the, Cirque Nova is the receptor name of the company. In, receptor on a cell wall, receptor where? Um, the, so uh, the delivery mechanism is, is, is a separate story. Okay. Um, so the, the company will, uh, will design one or several molecules that would fit a receptor that could be on a cell surface or could be inside of a cell. Using so, AI. Using AI. Okay. So the AI, so AI looks at the problem and says, here, and let me, let me. It predicts a thing that yes. is not coding. Not coding is important because it that means no side effects, no craziness. Coding as in C-O-D-I-N-G. Coding as in it has as some information. It yes. has genetic yep. information. So there are, there are uh, you, you can produce a piece of RNA that should for all intents and purposes, do nothing at all, and it's just its three-dimensional shape yep. that makes it a key that fits into a lock perfectly well. And so it's predicting that three-dimensional structure, and you can then ship that off. It, basically, making these types of molecules has become incredibly cheap okay. over the past decade. So make these three keys, see which ones fit, and you can be in preclinical trials tomorrow as opposed to spending years trying to figure out a protein that might fit. And, and that fit would be a delivery mechanism? What, what is the fit doing once, once they're bonded in those receptors? It would, so depending on uh, what very specific, so then you're going down the, the particular path of, okay, we're talking triple negative breast cancer. Um, if, we're, if we're talking about a surface receptor, it would activate or block, yep. depending on what you want to do with that receptor. Well, the one listener being me in post-production. Um, when you talk about why is it easier to design, um, I'll call it a non-coding RNA, but which is yeah. called RNA. Why is it easier to design a particular RNA sequence as opposed to a protein sequence? 
why is it easier to find the appropriate sequence, whether it's protein, a protein or RNA, to match whatever seems to be the uh, critical receptor? Why is one versus Proteins are larger and more complex. So the I think. If, it, if you just line it up on a table like a string of pearls, uh, you know, um, uh, different, different, uh, different peptides, um, then we, we all have a pretty good understanding of how they bind to each other. Once they go into three-dimensional space, they do things that are sometimes a little harder to predict, and, they, and so it, it's more, uh, proteins are larger, and so it is, it is just, it is, we think. Um, easier uh, to make sure that what we're building actually fits on a very granular level um, and has no secondary and tertiary interactions that we're unsure of. So it's, 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 okay, a, it's so a faster... A, a, so it's on a, a small sequence of RNA sequence, mm -hmm. it's not going to, it's, they're not going to fold likely or they won't fold, so there's not that degree of freedom. They, they will fold, but we can predict very accurately how they fold. And so if they're, if they're this type of cable, um, exactly predicting that this for, this, every single time it will do exactly this. And just this, not that, will fit into a particular, into a particular Is there key. a difference between the way an RNA will bind into the receptor and a protein sequence might bind? Assuming you could get the geometry correct, is there something about the the uh, radicals or whatever does the binding that would change what is for, for example is protein inherently better or inherently worse or the same it doesn't really matter is that a fair question is it even it is it is a fair question it is a good question and um i'm coming to circ nova as an advisor and so my technical depth is is just about here. I'm a okay. I'm a molecular biologist, and so if you ask me six months from now, I'll be better at it. Okay. But practically, my I have uh, I have met the founders. I really like what they're doing. At my current level of understanding, I find it really exciting. Um, and they say to you that this is easier. It's a quicker pathway. No pun, I guess, intended to a solution <laughs> because we can design, we can predictably design these RNA sequences more quickly than we could with proteins, which has, or protein sequences, which has been the prior approach or the traditional approach. We can make them faster and more accurately. There's less shots on goal needed to get to the goal. <clears throat> we talked about that with, with uh, Stefan Kohler. We were talking about tech transfers and taking shots on goal and what if we could make it so that we had to take less shots on goal to get more companies that's out true. there, right? That's true. That so in this case, yeah. it's the same thing, but it's yeah. with these uh, these that, pathways. That's true. That's true. And and, yep, and, yep. and using AI. So yeah, maybe analogy maybe, works great in I know, but, well. but maybe right. we need to add AI to the tech transfer process. Oh God. Maybe AI could predict yeah, which right. ones are better yeah. shots on goal. Yeah, yeah. You know, having having worked um, on the on the startup support side of a tech transfer office, I do have an opinion on that. Sure. And I would say, um, I'm glad. This will be interesting. I, I would say the the job <clears throat> and the goal of a tech transfer office is first and foremost to serve to university faculty inventors. Understood. And so, uh, successful startups are just one metric of success for a tech transfer office. Understood. Um, in the end, enabling 
every great invention that comes out of that universe and him to make the impact it can is what they do. Some of it is a licensing deal. Sure. Not everything has to become Correct. a startup. That's right. Some things Correct. are well better suited yeah, yeah, to yeah, just yeah. throw all to the money. And, and your point. Sorry, I was only half. <laughs> no, the, the point is that it's not about what my what my metric is. My metric is well, you yeah. have this many companies and yeah, this yeah, many right. vendor disclosures. That's not the Agreed. goal. The goal is Agreed. let's support all of the faculty and staff to do the best at helping create value out of their invention or technology. If you're supporting startups, right. all shots on goal, on uh, or, or you want to increase your ratio sure. of successful startups. But if you're supporting faculty, you yeah. can support faculty in different ways. That's right. So I, guess I play in the game of supporting startups. And sure. so I want startups that I support, be that, in a, be that okay. in, at the University of Michigan, be that at MedTech Innovator, be that in my future. I want the startups that I support to be wildly successful, and that's where I lean in. And I think, I think that's where my, my metric is because of, and maybe it's a limited mindset, I apologize if that's what it is, of finite resources oh, that can get dedicated to, to, yeah. those, to those number of companies and faculty and staff, right? So um, is it, are they well served if we could take that finite resource and divvy it up amongst each one of them? Or do they get further down the road with the ones that have the ability to help civilization or society or, or patients or you know whatever it is? If we say, well, this is the amount that we're going to put towards everybody and everybody gets an equal share, and then this is the amount that we're going to put towards the winners. And the winners are the ones that have survived and clawed their way to the top of this survival of the fittest startup game, that, this Game of Thrones that we play in, in, I guess I'm looking at it as an investor. But which one do I want to place my bet on? So. I think as an investor, you come in much later. Yeah. Um, oh, of and course. So, so uh, at that point, you do pick winners. Of sure. course, you. Sure, sure. In, so right. there, the game different, is information asymmetry. Different games. Right. As information asymmetry is you think that through your past experience and knowledge, you understand something better mm -hmm. than the next person and see a deal that the next person didn't see. Yeah. And that is how you pick sure. a winner in yep. your mind. Yep. Yep. Um, at the very early stage, at somebody making a discovery in a lab and, 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 and deciding do I file for a patent or not, it may simply be too early to know whether that's a winner or not. Yep, that's correct. So, you know, if I had oh, yeah. to pick a metric, I would say give it five years of continuing Support, to look for yeah. grants. Yep. And so that's, that's at the very right. early invention stage, that's discovery fair. and invention stage. But you and I come in usually years later. Yeah. Um, and so then we, we look at the, the winners of that particular process. Sure. They managed to get SBRS, TTR funding. Sure, sure. They managed to meet a couple of angels. They have done their customer discovery through an i program or what have you. They have ascertained product market fit. They have retained some folks with a business mind so that you don't just have a technical founder who tells you that they found something really nifty. Yep. So where does that university Experience, which is clearly earlier stage, play into or complement the equivalent role at, say, um, a family office or in venture capital. To what extent is there overlap? To what extent can you draw? Can one draw the university early stage support experience and bring it to um, a more advanced? again, venture capital, family office investing or angel investing perspective? I think that very much uh, depends on the appetite for risk. And so if you expect your investments to return 
uh, ideally what you invested, sure. <laughs> probably far more than that, that's why you're investing, in the next decade, uh, then they need to have made some progress already. So, if, of course, if you're talking to somebody who has a new nifty dating app, that could return that investment within the next year, two years, five years. Sure. If you're talking about anything in hard tech, um, and, and so, you know, I, I've played in the biomedical field for the last couple of years. In the biomedical field, there's almost invariably some form of regulatory approval and reimbursement at play. And that will take years. Um, and so, uh, when we're talking, is, is, is TRL, technology readiness level, something that yep. you're familiar oh, with? Yeah, so technology readiness level, we, uh, in, 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 uh, we would sometimes talk about at, at TRL 1 or 2, uh, you're, how many miracles do you still need for yeah. this thing to work, right. right? And so as a family officer, as an, as an angel, as a very early stage investor, um, chances of this thing not working at all, perhaps because we couldn't make the science work for us, um, is high. So the, the, the question really is then, are you doing this to eventually make money? Or are you doing this because you, you think the science is really nifty? If you can afford to lose the money, absolutely go for it at that stage. If you cannot afford to lose the money, you need a portfolio approach in the first place, but you need to come in a little bit later where the science has been de-risked and the risk you are facing is a business risk, no longer a science risk. And where does innovation in process, whether it's innovation in technology or innovation in process, factor into those later stage decisions? Question makes sense. I, I I was just about to ask you to rephrase the yeah, question. Just where does where does innovation come in? Is, is well, so you've got two. You've got two. You're now at at not early stage mm -hmm. um, at a university where you can. It appears to be innovative and technically innovative, and the decisions are limited right now. Uh, do we file for patent protection because that at least keeps the game going? That's the ante to keep the game going. We're not at that stage. We're now much later stage. We have two, say, you're with a venture capital firm or a family office or a large angel investment group, and you've got three competing opportunities, all uh, early stage, early revenue, mm -hmm. early in revenue. So the market, the mar there's a market. Mm -hmm. We don't know how big the market can be. We can take some guesses at it, or whether, as, as some people say, whether they'll eat the dog food whether the market will eat the mm -hmm. dog food. How do you decide between three companies that one is highly innovative, uh, technically innovative, one's marginally innovative, and one is just a great leadership team? Um, mm -hmm. How do you decide between those? Where does innovation play in there? It's not, it's not necessarily a uh, slam dunk to keep the, the sports metaphors going. So that's a really interesting question, especially because where I play, Revenue means you are in market and selling, and that is that is mind blowing. And the, for not not everybody gets there, right? A small percentage. No, but if that can be an answer to the game, yeah. I'm, but but I'm, I'm still. Yeah. I I like the three that you teed up, right? It is technically really nifty, has a really good leadership team, and hold on, somewhere in between, and somewhere in between. Um, in my mind, I would then. It's, technically really nifty and great leadership team, neither of those tell me uh, what the world really wants. And so... Well, they're all in revenue, yes. We know so that. So they're making, they're making money, but if, if, if I'm putting my money on the line, 
I am betting on the fact that from the little bit of money that they're making now, they're going to be making a hundred times as much money five years from now or something like that. And yeah. in order for that to be correct, um, uh, great leadership is helpful, but I still want to look at that market. Does so the fact that something's technically elegant doesn't mean it slots in right into my habits. So a slot in solution is far preferred over a technically super elegant solution where I have to, for example, convince my nursing staff to do an extra step. Yes, it's more elegant and yes, it will give me more data and it is so nifty. But am I going to walk down to the, to the floor and tell a, a bunch of overworked nurses they now have to do an extra step? No, I won't. And so you could give it to me for free and I wouldn't take it. And so, and so a great leadership team would recognize that and would uh, work very hard on how this particular nifty innovation can be integrated into existing workflows. That Seamlessly. Will, it yeah. seamlessly yeah. or even take a step out where right. where I'm saving you time not uh, uh, as opposed to the is innovation and you're, you're clearly innovation is clearly relevant to that but innovation isn't driving at all you know it sounds like leadership is driving it and market opportunity is driving it and innovation is sort of a I mean I want I'm tempted to say that innovation is simply a barrier to entry a competitor's barrier to entry and we don't care how the innovation is protected, whether it's intellectual mm -hmm. through patents, or whether it's through trade secret, or 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 some, which is be known how. Um, innovation to me is a barrier to entry. It really seems to focus on team and market opportunity. And innovation may be not irrelevant, but a uh, secondary factor, almost a, insurance, insurance in general, or, or or flanking protection and market position. I, I think you hit it on the head with barrier to entry and I also think of the moat that you're building to be able to uh, grow, keep and maintain your market share. But that is all business. That is That has nothing to do with how nifty it is. So we're teaching these, so with the focus on STEM and everything else, are we teaching mm -hmm. kids the wrong things these days? Um, I think you have to have a basic understanding of how things work. Practic so the, the question to answer, are we teaching kids the wrong things these days? Um, you would have to have an opinion on, would you rather be the person who comes up with a really nifty innovation? So the, the, the person who does the discovery, the invention, or would you prefer to be the person who recognizes that this is really nifty out of all the other things that are also really interesting and says that? that is really interesting. I want to help that get to market. And so one skill set uh, and the other are not necessarily overlapping. And I would say there's, there's the other skill set, and I think that um, involving my 16-year-old recently in some industry events, he quickly picked up that he just wants to go and find problems. Like he says, hey, I'm just going to go make a list of problems, right? And I've had other similar, even inventors that were very inventive people, scientists, you know, backgrounds in, in, in whatever the depth they needed to be, but they said, you know what, I'm just going to go and for a year I'm going to take a list of all the problems I find in healthcare, in, you know, whatever it is. And that's, I think, where the leadership comes, is recognizing that it's not about necessarily the inventive solution yet. It's not about the nifty, innovative thing. It's about, have you seen this problem over here that they're having? And then goes and scours the landscape for those innovative things that would fit in that particular thing. It's, it's like the book the missing piece. So the sad thing I'm hearing here is that um, it sounds like 
So in terms of what we're teaching kids these days, if you walk into this building we're in right now on a weekend, you'll see, I think, is it Thai, which is one of the local industry yep. innovation entrepreneurial mm -hmm. groups, seems to be working with a bunch of kids, and these are high school kids, yep. on, it looks like they're working on programming to me, because mm -hmm. that's a sort of a low barrier to actually technology. Sure. I mean, doesn't, no lab space. Um, and so they must be teaching them at least familiarity with software mm -hmm. engineering. Um, and if more than if some of them will be learning more than getting more than familiarity, they'll be actually becoming proficient. But what I'm beginning to think is that, and, and, you have, and if you go across the street, you've got MIT and you've got a lot of hardcore technology going on sure. there. It's almost as if on the entrepreneurial side, and this, should, this is not a great revelation, but I'm sort of putting it together. On the entrepreneurial side, it's almost the leadership, the ability to recognize the problem, the ability the, to bring the group forward and, and capitalize on the problem and turn it into money by bringing investors in, uh, finding how you make product, et cetera, et cetera. And it's almost like the folks across the street, the hard, high tech, the high, the hard technology people, are an, a necessary evil. They're only a component. They're not driving. They're not necessarily driving the money. They're solving some of the problems. And this is so this goes back to my, my request, right? And my request is at these universities where we're teaching hard tech, where we've got the brightest minds working on how can we, you know, um, how can we solve those problems, right? Why not start with the unsolved problems? And, and I think a lot of them go into it with that intention. They go and they learn about, you know, um, let's say climate change, for example. And what are the big problems with climate change? And what are the, all the different ways in which we can look at this problem and how can we solve it with hard tech or with some new technology or AI or otherwise, right? And then they get together as a team. They've got the leadership. They've got you know, somebody with a recent MBA and somebody with a physics background and somebody with a chemistry background. And they say, let's go approach this and attack this problem together. Where does and pure I think science those, play into that? Where does pure science, because I feel like, it's again, a compo it's, it's absolutely an important component. Do know to actually to know what the real problem is, yep. because because so and you and I can receptors? all see yeah. societal problems. So yeah. climate change is a problem, but um, unless you have deep understanding of a particular area of science, sure. you may not know how to solve it. We can all say it's a problem, and we can we can dedicate all of our time to. Um, looking into the types of technologies that could help to solve it, but then how to take that particular technology and apply it um, and scale it to really provide a solution. That requires some sort of knowledge in that area. Was yeah. Einstein working, so a little I know about the guy, um, which is very little. He, let's assume at that point that he was doing his theorizing. Mm -hmm. That was, I think it's called pure science. Yeah. He was solving no problem. <clears throat> well, I think the, the theory of relativity was it, it, an imaginatory. It was so, so I think science, Einstein or not, I also don't know enough about Einstein to give you a perfect answer to that. But science is understanding the world around us yeah. and hypothesizing how it works and then Agreed. conducting experiments and understanding it. And when you understand something, you can apply something from here to there. Agreed. And that then becomes innovation. I can use a tactic that I, that, that I know right. from agricultural technology in a problem in plastic injection molding that the plastic injection molding guys Agreed. haven't thought about because they're, they're only looking into the, the, the physical chemistry of the material. 
So here's, here's the thing. So Einstein was a terrible student, right? Didn't pay attention in class, didn't want to be there, was more apt to look out the window and daydream about things that could solve problems, right? He was actually it, it, contemplating this podcast. Sure, but he had, he had an amazing imagination, yeah. right? Yeah. And his ability to envision what things could happen and, and put these things together. But one of the most formative times of his life was when he spent at the patent office. And he was inundated with many different disparate things. And he started putting things together. <clears throat> he started dreaming about how these things could work together to solve problems. And then he would postulate and theorize and put his imagination to work to, to look at problems. And whether it was you know, imagining what it would be like to ride on a photon or a light particle or a, a light beam, that's where the, the genius of Einstein came in. And when we look at studies about creativity, it is most people find it easier to react to something that you put in front of them. And so telling someone your invention is stupid and is flawed in these five ways is much easier than Ouch. coming up with something. I didn't. Jeez. <laughs> And that's so, in so many ways what people use ChatGPT for right now. Sure. Write me a thing, Tell then me. I'm going to read it and fix it. Yep. That is easier than me coming up with a thing. Now, there are people who are... are Wait a minute. <laughs> so stop right there. That's an interesting point. And so, but you, did, you, I think, I, you haven't passed judgment on either of those. Fill in the blank. One of them is one of these exercises is not a good one. That is having it do the writing and you correct it is not, I think, is good. The implication of what you said. You is never not. go with your first iteration on ChatGPT. You always have to add another. No, 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 no. But that's not so, the thing. Okay. So you were going somewhere, then you didn't fill in the blank. I was. I was. You did not I fill in the political blank. On I tend. That. I tend to not pass judgment not? just because I think many different ways can get you to a goal. In the end, we choose. Sure. We so so, unless you do something that is unethical. Um, it's worth trying to pursue it your way. I will observe you doing something your way. And so if your way is, I want to write a novel, and I'm going to tell, tell Chad GPT the three things that I want this novel to be about. That's a um, good point. And, and here's a first draft. That may be a horrible draft. And I do not recommend a creative work to be started reacting to somebody else's work, just because you as a human may write it very differently than a machine might, as clever as the machine is. Now, coming back to Einstein and his work at the patent office, uh, Einstein saw a ton of work, some of it probably very good, some of it probably not very good, and because he was truly smart, yeah, he smart. could see some of the flaws of what other people did. And so sometimes discovering the flaw of what somebody else is doing leads to inspiration in ways that are different from something that you would have come up with with a blank sheet of paper. Okay, right. so, that, I don't know how this gets me there, but I want to go back to where I was. Uh, what we teaching, not only teaching kids, where are which we is, then? are we better off, in the old days we taught creativity, mm -hmm. now we teach innovation, and I get the sense that innovation is more economically uh, oriented, mm -hmm. and yet what Einstein did, and what's going on across the street in the astronomy lab, which is definitely not going to bring anything practical to this planet for some time, probably. For some time. So should we be teaching creativity again and just acknowledge that when we're talking creativity, we are talking pure hard science and we're talking pure hard business. In other words, creativity seems to be to be more interesting to be instructing, offering instruction on than innovation, which seems too narrow and too Facebook-oriented, if you will. Okay, so to Diane's point earlier about, hey, there's lots of different ways to get there. Yes. I don't think you can teach creativity. I think creativity is a natural ability 
that we muffle, stifle, and, and, and squash in, in, early, in early years. I think if you give a child a problem or a simple problem or something, they're, they're going to find lots of different ways to do it, right? You can put five different kids in five different rooms and they're all going to come up with different ways. Some of them are going to match their ways of solving the problem, but I think creativity is a natural ability that just needs to be nurtured as opposed to taught. There are some in, in let's say, art school or, or other... Um, I'm smirking or whatever. Yeah, that's fine. I, I, I recognize that and that's, that's why we get along so well. So, so I recognize your smirch. Uh, and I'll raise you a, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so a grimace. A grimace. So I think there's a lot of creativity that happens in early childhood that we don't recognize, number one, don't um, embrace, and that we also um, uh, debilitate as we try to push people into a box to create value for our, our society. Um, and as someone who has a 16-year-old and a 2-year-old that are almost identical, I've watched them grow in these ways that, it's just natural. The way that the way that kids play is creativity. We have a natural ability I agree. to do this. I, just don't, I think you can teach it. You can teach innovation, but way in there. I, I think you can teach innovation. I don't think you can teach creativity. I think you can teach creativity. Okay. I, I think we all come prepackaged with something, and some things are more drawn out than others. Yep. And so I, I, I will agree with with both of you, which is seems which seems to be impossible. No, I, I, but but I think that you come you come prepackaged with some of it. I think the point that we are missing yeah. from this discussion is um, discipline. Yeah. When we talk about creativity, we generally think it's a free flowing process where I just do whatever floated into my head. That is one version of creativity. Sure. Um, but practically, when you talk to some to, 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 to uh, writers, for example, many writers have a strong, and, and so fiction writers, right, people who use their creativity as their, as their art form, they have a strong discipline about, I must write at least whatever, yeah, right. X amount sure, every sure. morning. So um, discipline is something that we don't talk about very much in this context, but I consider innovation to be a discipline and and uh, you know that's a, it's it's, Absolutely. It's, a, it's, a, it's a professional view we have taught in in in, in my, my prior firm we have talked taught people to be innovative and it is a it is a daily a weekly a monthly and annual it is it is a discipline it's a different way of looking at the world and thinking and so I'm tying that back to science uh, the reason I stand tall uh, in, in my choice to pursue a PhD and will still tell other people like should you get a PhD shouldn't you just drop out of school and do something that will make you money immediately um, perhaps it really depends on where you are uh, and I'll have that conversation with that person but I think what a PhD gets you is great depth into one area I can go I can go very deep into some molecular pathways that somebody else might not but practically, you may not care. Very few people in the world care about the thing that I'm an expert in. But what it teaches me is how to think. And so, how do we teach children? How, what, you know, what should we teach our children? We should teach our children how to think. But only the discipline on going quite deep on something, and, and hopefully something you love, so that it doesn't feel like drudgery. Um, is so the why do you go. distinguish between, I don't understand why the two of you distinguish between creativity and innovation. To me, creativity is the broader category in innovate sorry, creativity is the broad category and innovation is a subset. So creativity for me is it's a left brain, right brain type thing, right? So on the right side of our brain is nonverbal, 
right? It's illogical. It's free flowing. It's it's the opposite of what happens on the left side of the brain, where most what of is us innovation? where most of us spend our time. Innovation is on the left side of the brain. Right. It's discipline. It's 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 written word, applied to a spoken market. word, applied to a problem <laughs> in, 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 a, in a logical way, in a linear fashion, in a okay, in a okay. step and stages. So, on the right side of the brain, you can train creativity by learning how to see, by learning how to observe, by learning how to uh, witness, or by learning how to take what I see and put it on paper. Which requires no talking. It requires a different frame of mind. And there's, there's clearly two different hemispheres to that frame of thought. There's a great book by Betty Edwards called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. I read it in seventh grade. It propelled me into art school to my creative side and, and, and building my creative repertoire of all the different things in 2D and 3D and, and learning how to think. Teaching me uh, the, the perspective that I needed to take in order to observe and create 2D and 3D art. However, when I went and did my MBA, it was taking all those things and adding discipline to finance, accounting, economics, so that I could see the world the way that a business person sees the world and put things in a structured format to lead a business to solve a problem. But if you put both of those things together, you get creativity and innovation, and that's where there's that's where there's even more yeah, fertile ground. I mean, yeah, at some point, at some, uh, to me, there's a significant overlap. The, in, the interesting part of innovation, to me, is the creative part but I don't deny you then need discipline to recognize whether this is a useful creation. Sure. Useful as it needs to be, because the creativity that's going on across the street, as people are observing uh, the, the angular momentum of a black hole, that has no, so far as we know, sure. no innovative, um, there's no practical economic value to that now, so, but I still want to encourage that creativity. Okay, so there was, there was an interesting, example, I met a young entrepreneur years ago in New York City, his name was Joe Landolina, and Joe was a chemist, um, studied on his family's chemistry lab in, they had, uh, maybe it was a vineyard or something that they had, a family business that was maybe making wine, they had a chemistry lab, and um, he blew a couple things up, started some fires, his family said, you can only use the chemistry lab down by the algae pond, uh, and so he started messing around with algae in his free time. He understood the basics of the chemistry, started messing around with the algae and the, and the, the uh, organic chemistry that he found there, and he was able to invent creatively to create an algae-based wound care mm -hmm. uh, that, that basically you just pour it on a cut and it would turn into right. a lattice that would right. stop the bleeding immediately. Right. So he needed both the ability to, to freeform creatively, you know, create, and also the discipline of the underlying science behind it in order to be innovative. But it takes both. It takes that exploratory yeah. imagination and it takes the discipline. You have to have both, both ingredients. And that one is innate and one is taught. But that makes it really hard to do in large organizations, sure. right? Just Absolutely. because your your shareholders will want to will want to know. Wait, you 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 have X amount of scientists on on staff, and they're doing what? 
Um, and, right. and so <laughs> a return in a certain amount of time is what we all expect, and that right. is why over the past, you know, make it 20 years, uh, innovation has gone from R&D, inside of large organizations, has gone from R&D to M&A. Sure. Because at least if you bring something out from, from the outside, you know what you're getting, and you know that it is solving this particular problem for you. It has already been vetted and tested. But of course, you're buying it at a much higher price than if you had developed it in-house. Mm -hmm. No, that's no, correct. I agree with all that. That's interesting. So how, how would you say, let's, yeah. let's ask Dave some questions. Yeah, really. He's been, he's been just firing them off <laughs> the whole time. You don't get to, you don't I get thought his this. role was to so, be the curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting my view. Cheers. My so, so here's my, my, here's my question. Yeah. If you're going to grimace, yeah. how do you teach creativity? If, if it's not innate, how do you I'll teach imagination? It's the exact same thing we're doing now. With We call it innovation because the parents of uh, these kids in Cambridge or the local communities want to know how this is going to make money for them. But what we call innovation, in my mind, a lot of it really is creativity combined with discipline and, and sort of a practical, a practical application. But I don't think that you need to call it left brain, right brain, innate, not innate, um, learn. I think what we need to do is, so go sit and stare out the window and think, Here, maybe you present a problem, mm. or maybe you don't. Stare out the window for a while and think about something that would interest you and that you'd like to learn about and explore it like the, what I hear the Montessori sure. schools mm -hmm. seem to do. Sure. Now, come back in a week after you've stared out the window 10 times or five times and tell me what things you thought about. Now, let's see what we can do with those. Well, some kids, I guess, are destined to be hard, going to go into hard sciences and are, there's going to be no practical application, but it does seem like an interesting issue. Sure. You know, uh, dark energy or whatever. Some kids are going to come back and say, well, I've got a neat idea for making Facebook better. Sure. And but, so, but, we, but what you mentioned is an example of, hey, go sit and stare out the window. So go sit and stare out the window implies that the brain of that observer is somehow just processing what they're taking in and what the brain does with those thoughts and not, yeah. does with those things. That's an innate activity. It's not something you, you can't really, you can teach people how to observe. I don't believe that. But I don't believe you can't teach. I, I can't. When, when I look out the window and you look out the window, do you think that we're seeing the same thing? doesn't even matter what we're seeing. I may not be seeing anything. Yeah, no, I don't know what we're seeing. I just, to me, I guess what it comes down to is I don't know how you can in the same breath say you can teach innovation and, and yet deny that you can teach creativity. It's all one and the same. Uh, but I think creativity, I think innovation is a process. I think innovation is, is if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to come out with a product. If creativity is, is a... Um, it's the way that our brain forms. I think you're forms. digging a hole for yourself. I think all we need to say is that innovation begins with creativity. And that if you're going to hard sciences, you'll never get down far down the innovation path because we don't need it to. And if you're going down um, the practical mid-sized company, you got to get another product out in five years, you better be on the innovation path quickly. So are you arguing that we should teach more creativity in our classrooms? I think that we should stop focusing. We should change the name of this podcast from Innovation Blab to Creativity Blab. All right. Because not all creativity leads to innovation and leads to economic result. It doesn't need to. And we don't want it to. Okay. I mean, we need to know about black holes. We need to know about all that stuff. Sure. I don't know why. But all those things were postulated well, we first. They were all just thought of. They were they were an idea. They were a, hey, if this is true, then that means that black holes exist. Yeah, okay, so let's make it more practical. We want to get to the moon. We're not sure why. It seems to be a hard science in the 
you know, the 1900s or sure, the sure, 1950s is sure. okay. science. Yep. And we're figuring out how to get there. In the 1930s, we developed, or 20s, whatever, we developed, or 40s, we developed rockets. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we figure out how to get to the moon. So we're still we're 100 years off now, 150 years off it's going to be, maybe before somebody starts mining this stuff, you know, that big asteroid that's setting yeah, yeah. all metal. Sure. There's going to be a ton of money in that. So you need to fund all that. That was creativity originally that was going to go. It was hard science creativity, but in not too distant in the future, it's going to be real money. And the, one can imagine that the study of black holes will be the same. This question is going to be more like a 1,000 or you know, 10,000 years. Sure. Before that turns. Well, out. now we're postulating white holes, right? That's what yeah. we're that's what we're talking about. But my point is that we, the, the distinction between creativity and innovation, to me, there's not much of a distinction. One does require that you try to bring it to a marketplace, and I guess that's what we're we're calling innovation. Yeah. Um, that's fine, but it all starts with creativity. I can't believe that innovation doesn't start with creativity. Okay, I would say that sometimes it 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 starts with observance, right? An However, observation. Well, maybe your eyes are closed. Okay. Maybe it just starts with a dream. But I guess what we need to do, what's my point? I guess my point is that maybe there's too much focus on money. Wow. Okay. Okay, your turn. <laughs> I think there are two concepts at play here. Um, one is nature versus nurture. Sure. Um, and, and so that, that harkens back to the what do we teach, what is already in ourselves, how do we draw it out. I think Dave's so going to do a master's in art now. You're going to do a master's in fine art now. And, and the, the other one um, is, is really, uh, the, the, I find the creativity versus innovation, um, I find that a, a, a mostly semantic discussion. That's fine. yes. And, and, so, and, and so whether you rename the podcast or not, I look forward to seeing <laughs> the result. Yeah. I, can, I can see both. But practically, um, in... in if, if we apply the lens of does it make money, will it ever make money, um, to uh, the question is it innovation, then the almost it, it begs the question in what time frame? Okay, because yeah. when you say oh the the, the you know uh, studying black holes does not make money, that is it does not currently make money. Now we can start taking bets. Will it make? Will things that we discover because we we study black holes make money in the next decade, or in the next fifty years? Um, by by in the next fifty years, it probably will. In the next decade, that's harder to say. So when we're looking at futuring, um, yeah. we can we can always so, so you know people who study. Uh, th what the future may or may not look like, right? So you can, you can, uh, the farther out, you can get surprisingly or counterintuitively perhaps uh, have greater certainty as to what the intermediate to long-term future looks like than the immediate future. And my classic example for that is autonomous driving. We know mm -hmm. we're getting autonomy in the, in, basically the fact that I, I'm going to just say 10 years from now, let's have this conversation. Sure. But yeah. 10 years from now, I feel reasonably confident that I can get mm -hmm. into my car and my car will take me places. Yeah. Whether I do the first mile and last mile and it, my mm -hmm. car sure, will sure. just do the in-between or not, semantics, right? So we will get pretty good autonomy yeah. in the 10-year future. The five-year future or the three-year future is far murkier because it depends on what happens between now and then in legislature and different countries and what have you, and innovation. But it's also all the external market factors. So um, if your lens is, um, if your lens is, does it make money um, as, a, as a definition of innovation? And I admit that I pushed it. So that, that may in part be my mistake. Um, 
then you have to define in what amount yeah, of I agree. time. Yeah, I agree. That's fair. So yeah. teach That's people. To, so so in, so you can almost remove uh, the does it does it make money from the equation, or you define it more narrowly. But what should we teach young people? It depends on what they want to learn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that I think that the word the word that we're looking for and what Einstein was so brilliant at was yeah. curiosity. Yeah. Ponderance. Yeah. And and that was you know not necessarily for an end. There wasn't an end. There was a there was a exercise. There was it's creativity is like a muscle, right? We all are born with this muscle, and if you exercise it, if you permit yourself, if you permit your children to exercise that muscle, they will become more creative. And that's the learning, right? It's how do you become more creative? Yeah. Yeah. Um, observance, curiosity, witnessing, uh, looking at things from different angles and such. But you only have the tools at your disposal. And that's, that's right. why we teach the children, simply because um, if I'm three, the tools at my disposal might be crayons and blocks. Sure. Whereas if I'm a nuclear physicist, the tools at my disposal might be a reactor. <laughs> it might be yeah. a reactor, and I can answer different questions and invent different things. I agree. I'm thinking about the kids that I really don't. Again, I see them, the high school kids. I mm -hmm. see them here on weekends, yeah. and they seem to be teaching them again programming. And I suspect it's innovative, innovation, money related. And I'm thinking maybe there's a kid in there who has figured out a better way to do addition. Yeah. You know, with different operations. That's not going to make money for a long time, I don't think. Maybe I, I would argue that black holes have made money. Have you ever seen Interstellar? I love that movie. And, and, movie. and there it is. That, that yeah. might be the most money Great that movie. black holes have made. You haven't seen that? I have not. No? Yeah, oh, that was good. Yeah. Mind-bending. Mind There's a been a bunch. Matthew McConaughey. I would argue yeah. that Diane needs to bring this to a close. Yeah, please. Abruptly, but who even cares? <laughs> Sum it up for us. Today, we have had a fascinating conversation that involved creativity, innovation, um, and interestingly, education. That was the part that surprised me. Um, but uh, I would say that that is also the part that is magic of a live conversation. You don't know what you're getting into. You don't know what you'll come up with. But, and we may not have solved all of the world's problems, but um, certainly we have uh, rubbed our in creative intelligence uh, uh, um, against a couple of interesting problems, and I hope to find solutions in the future. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here with us, Diana. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I never asked. <laughs>